Hi listeners, I'm Lisa, the founder of Maxine VR and the host of Maximize Mental Health. This podcast is for Gen Z and everyone who wants to talk about mental health, struggles and everyday problems. Every week we're inviting guests who are sharing their personal stories. Join us for casual conversations between our co-hosts Barbara and Ryan and our weekly guests who are breaking taboos and stigma around mental health. Welcome to Maximize Mental Health. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of the Maximize podcast for Gen Z. I'm your host, Ryan Michael Hennon, and we're joined here today by Sean Flores, a man of many talents, support worker, uh, freelance journalist, OCD advocate, you name it, he's done it. Uh, welcome very much, Sean. Pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast, Ryan. It's great to be able to come somewhere and to share my experiences, and hopefully this helps the Gen Z population because obviously a lot of the work that I do is all about helping millennials and Gen Z. So thank you again for the opportunity. No problem. No problem. Pleasure is mine. So basically, uh, in preparation of this, I watched, you know, a couple of your TED Talks, you know, um, you talked about the education system, you've talked about, you know, straitjacket masculinity, trying to get men open up with their mental health and read a bit about your work and that sort of thing. And one thing that stands out, you know, whether it's kind of written work or speaking on when you're speaking on TED or whether you've been on some other podcasts that I've seen, you know, one thing that really stands out is the level of passion you have uh, for everything you talk about. So, and I recognize it because it's kind of, it's a sort of passion that only really comes from being directly affected by what you're now talking about in a way. So it's very easy to talk about something in the abstract and be like, you know, and then it was usually something quite boring, but you know, what you talk about is something that you're, you've been deeply affected by and that passion kind of, you know, really resonates, um, I think, with probably everyone that watches. So I suppose I could start by what, um, tell us, uh, for those who, who are not aware of who you are, tell us about your experience with OCD and just how it shaped your life to this point. Yeah, great question. And you're right that I think sometimes when you've experienced things in a certain kind of way, it gives you a very different understanding of that um, other people who experience it as well. So I don't think it disqualifies people who haven't experienced it, but I, 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 I it's, it's almost the best way to describe it. It's that finishing touch to a meal that you've put on when you've cooked it with love. You know, there's a certain emphasis and there's a certain idea that comes with it. So yeah, for myself, I had a really big mental breakdown last year in 2022 as a result of OCD. I was having certain intrusive thoughts around sexual assault and suicide, and I couldn't understand what was going on in my head. So I decided... I need to go and get help. And I was really suicidal for a very long time. I didn't want to be awake, didn't want to be alive. I remember I looked at time almost. I was hoping time would hurry up and speed up just so I could get on with the day and just so I could get through things. And I found this woman online called Emma Garrick, the Anxiety Whisperer. And she saved my life really and truly. When I had nothing, I didn't have enough money. I lost my job because of where I was mentally. I couldn't focus. I couldn't concentrate on anything. I broke down in tears when we spoke on Saturday, the 4th of June. And she saved my life. There's no, I have no other way to put it. She helped me when I had nothing. She gave me hope when I had no hope. She gave me confidence when I had no confidence. And she encouraged me to go and tell the to go and tell the world my story because she said I would go out there to help so many people. Like she believed in me massively. And I can't even un tell people just how important it is to have someone to believe in you. So what happened was. In that same year, I had the OCD diagnosis. I tore my ACL, MCL meniscus and fractured my right leg, which I've just recently had surgery for. So I'm on another rebuild for another year to learn to walk, run, exercise again. 
After that, I ended up in hospital for three days of pneumonia. Then after that, my cousin, unfortunately, he was murdered. He was found in the back of a car boot uh, with bullet wounds and tied up. Then my auntie died. Then my half-brother died. It was one thing after another, after another. Then, unfortunately, I found out that my half-brother, I'm sorry that my stepdad, unfortunately, was in a home with vascular dementia, and he's obviously not getting any better. Then fast forward it to that year was already rough as it was as it is, right? And I started to rebuild my life. And I said to myself one morning when I woke up in the throes of depression that I'm going to change the world. I quite literally said, I'm going to change the world. I'm sick and tired of being depressed. I'm sick and tired of being, you know, sitting in my bed all day and just not giving myself anything. I'm like, I've got something to give to this world. And I went downstairs and I wrote my Google document and I wrote my story. And when I wrote my story, I never in estimated that it would have had the impact that it had on the world right now of where it is um, in society. So for me, a lot of the experiences that I've gone through were as a result of OCD, but also as a result of a childhood trauma that really profoundly changed my life, which was my, the death of my dad on Christmas day. And it's only been recently as I've gotten older, have I now realized how much his loss truly affected me and the magnitude of what it meant to lose a father. And Again, earlier this year, the aunt, one of the aunties who helped to promise, who promised to raise, um, promised my dad she would help raise me, and promised me she would help raise me. Cancer killed her, so unfortunately we lost her as well. And I remember I said to her on her deathbed, I said, "You kept your promise to my dad," and it brought me to tears because I said to her, "My dad, my dad would be so happy you kept his promise." So that was also hard. So a lot of the experiences I've gone through, they're raw. They're real. And most importantly, I'm honest with people because pain's not easy to get through. And I'm still working through a lot of things in my life. You know, there's a lot of, I'm, I'm, I'm on a very, a really big uphill battle, but the pain has been teaching me a really big lesson about my life, who I am and who I want to show up to be in the world. Thank you so much for that. This is an absolutely really beautiful articulation about everything you've been through. I think, um, it's absolutely it's testament to the strength that you have and the passion that you have that you're sitting here in front of me now um talking to me after you know horrendous experience after horrendous experience after horrendous experience just all seemingly in succession so it's testament to you know the strength and the person who you are that you're even talking to me right now on this podcast i think um one of the things that you you said there um kind of resonated with me and i want to pick up on that point it's kind of like you said whenever you were beginning to tell your story you didn't think it would like kind of proliferate the way it did and people wouldn't really kind of resonate with it you're surprised how you know many people kind of you know took to it well do you think that kind of exposes a sort of hunger um not just in gen z and but perhaps in the social landscape in its entirety whatever group people belong to do you think it kind of exposes a hunger for genuine real stories because i feel like you know people are you know if you go on tiktok you know you'll see like uh, terrible clips of just just nonsense after nonsense like it's just you know it's just some guys talking bullshit or it's just some celebrity talking nonsense and i think people like maybe are like really there's a massive hunger for those sort of stories. There's probably a lot of people like yourself, you know, who have had such a tragic story to tell, such a powerful story to tell that they really, but they haven't got there yet. And perhaps like you finding the strength to tell your story, that could be the nudge that some other people need to tell theirs. Do you think there is, you know, a real hunger for just people articulating, you know, the raw experience, you know, of the tragedy of life in that way? I massively do believe there is a real hunger for that yeah and what i noticed was 
sharing my story or somebody else's healing, but such sharing my story also halfens the burden and it keeps you as less of a prisoner to your story at times. So obviously with our brain, it's the amount of times we tell ourselves a story that over and over again, we start to believe it. And when I told people, people were shocked, first of all, but people also were really grateful and thankful to know that they weren't the only person out there suffering alone. Earlier today, I got another message from a young lady who's really suffering badly with OCD. And to be able to go on to help people, I'm not a therapist and I'm not a coach. I'm merely someone who offers peer support. Um, and I want to go on to really become a therapist and to help other people. So those are some of the roles I'm applying to. It made me realize that in a world inundated with fakeness and this need to push yourself out there to be somebody that society likes or to be validated and to have your ego really eat it, well, you'll have your ego satiated. People want honesty. People want to know life is not always easy. You know, there is a serious struggle that comes with this thing called life. And there's many moments where I'm, I often, um, quite recently, actually, I've said to myself, what am I doing this all for? Why am I telling my story? And I know I'm telling my story to help other people, but I'm questioning myself and interrogating myself a lot more being like, I know I want to help people, but there's also a part of me that wants the validation deep down probably where I'm realizing I want to be heard. And because I want to be heard as a result of that, other people feel heard as well. But I want to be heard because growing up, I didn't always feel heard. I didn't always feel like people recognized the pain that I was going through. And I didn't comprehend the pain that I was going through. So there is a need for authenticity, a need for realness. But I think also on the part of the person telling the story, there's a need for them to be heard by society and not just by themselves. I really agree with everything you said there. I think um I think the need for realness is kind of it's a really, really powerful thing. I think you know, it doesn't just obviously there's a lot of talk about the fakeness in social media. Like I just brought it up in TikTok there and that sort of thing. But I think the the fakeness is, is society wide. Even, you know, I think it's maybe why like young people are kind of, you know, and some and lots of other people as well are kind of turned off by politics, for example, because you know, they see at least politicians, the House of Commons, you heard yell perfectly and, you know, really expensive suits and, you know, it, that doesn't resonate with a lot of people. You know, they want real people from real struggle, you know putting forth their knowledge and, you know, influencing the policies that are, that are put forward. So I think that's one other area, you know, like even outside of social media, although they are intertwined, of course, but I think the fakeness is rampant. So the need for authentic stories that are told from the heart in a way and are told without an agenda, you know, are told, you know, look, this is me, this is my story and this is how I can help people in a way. And I think that's it's such a powerful thing. And I think um, it ties so much in with my own business. I've experienced, you know, a lot of mental health struggles as well in various years. Um, and I think um, my, what I really, what, what it made me realize and what, not just those struggles, but what working in mental health support and those various other roles made me realize is that a lot of people's struggles come from the fact that you, they're just not valued by society, you know, in a way, like there's a lot of, there's a lot of personal trauma, which plays its role in people's struggles, but there's also a lot of, I think when people feel like they're, you know, they're trapped at, People are constantly looking down on them, you know, that they're, you know, they conceive of themselves as, as, as like a trash person or they're, you know, they're part of trash, you know, they're, they're, they're not valued. You know, I think that's what I find is that is a real driver of, you know, serious mental health problems. And of course it would be, you know, if, if you feel like everyone's, the world's against you and you know, there's this giant, you're trying to go about your day with your left hand, you're holding up this giant boot with your right hand from stomping on you, you know, it's kind of like you would be so, um, you know, you, you would fall to pieces. And I think, um, you know, more stories about people falling to pieces and then finding their calling out of that where they 
where they can best fit into society. And I think, and I think that um, that is of absolute crucial importance. Massively, we're living in a time where the job market is uncertain. Some people would even argue we're living in a friendship um, recession where people are no longer being friends of people for as long compared to our relationships once upon a time ago. A lot of things are very transactional. You don't really meet people and have meaningful connections the way we once did. And community is everything. Having people around you is very important. And the times when I felt alone during my breakdown and even after really recently, even when I feel alone, I remember I'm not alone. And that's not always the case. Sometimes I get into my own head and I'm like, I'm alone. And I'm like, hold up. I can call people. There's people who love me. There's people who really do care about me. And carrying the weight of the world or carrying the responsibilities that one individual is carrying, you need people around you to help share and to help release yourself of that burden. This is why it's so important to have friendships and people around you who affirm you. And when I use the word affirm, because I think affirm like trauma are buzzwords which have been absorbed by popular culture, which has almost served to devalue those words. What I really and truly mean by affirm is people around you who support you, they want to see you to be the best kind of person possible, but they also hold you accountable. They let you feel what you need to feel, but they encourage you to keep moving forward. You don't, you cry to feel what you need to feel. You don't cry to give up. You cry to keep going. And that's something I've realized by having people in my circle. So I saw my physio just today and I've been feeling really down about my knee because I said to her, it's, it's been a month. I've got another 11 months to go. And she said, this is normal. She said, most people with the injury you've got, she said, it, one of the things that happened to me was enough to break somebody. She said, you've had one thing after another, after another, after another. And talking to her and to be able to get someone to understand that helped me to release some of the burden that I really and truly was feeling. And again, community doesn't always have to be the direct people. It can be people you talk to when you're on a walk, people that you see when you're in the gym, for example. So these small things, they really make a difference. Again, in complete agreement. I think there's a psychologist with a really nice quote. I think it's Alfred Adler who says, um, he, he says, uh, he talks about community as belonging to the full spectrum of humanity. So I think that kind of taps into what you said. It's a really nice definition of community. I think, you know, it could be people, you know, even chat to you online. It could be people you meet, you know, the amount of great conversations you have with random strangers, you know, like you said, you know, when you're walking your dog or doing something where you maybe didn't intend, you didn't have a, intend to have a structured conversation, you know, about the meaning of life with this random person that's crossed your path, but it happens. And I think that's, there is a, beneath all of the political division, and one thing it stands out to me, beneath all the political division, all of the, all of the divisions that we still have yet to heal and the, the terrible past that we have to come in terms with, uh, all of that, I think beneath it all, there's this genuine human connection that's, I feel like it's just waiting to be extracted, you know, by the right people. It's waiting to be kind of, you know, made more prominent in our lives, but it's so buried beneath all of our economic concerns and our political concerns. Not to devalue them, they're absolutely important, of course they are, but I think it's, you know, there's a, there's a human connection that, you know, even if it's someone you massively disagree with, you'll find there's a human being, you know, in there, you know, who, who's got that yes. way. You know, who's, yeah. who has a story of their own, who has, you know, you know, they've had, you know, hoops to jump through, they've had falls, they've had everything, and they're, they're, they are the way they are. So I think the importance of kind of meeting people where they're at and, you know, fostering that genuine human connection, which is more powerful than any anything else that, that comes forth, I think, in society. And one of the things that I'm really passionate about is empathy and compassion, you know, um, and I think um, there's lots of other pillars of the human psychological experience, but I think those two are pretty important. I think um, you find your true self or 
your truth, the truest expression you can be, I think, by being compassionate with other people and caring about other people, because then you get the right sort of affirmation in a way and not really narcissistic affirmation, that other kind that you kind of alluded to whenever you were talking very beautifully about affirmation there. And there's kind of like the other kind of affirmation, which comes from, you know, the likes and social media, you're wearing a nonsense suit, like, you know, and, you know, you're trying to get as much of that kind of falsehood sent your way as possible. But I think that the truest affirmation comes from, you know, being compassionate to people because if people resonate with your compassion and your empathy, then you're going to find your true self much easier because I think you've, you've done it in a non-transactional way, you know, mm. in a way, you know, you, you've made yourself vulnerable. You said, look, I care about you as a person. I really want you, you to do well. I really want to better this world. You meet more people that will resonate with that. And then you find out what you're actually good at, you know, and what you can offer the world, you know, and it's harder to find out, I think, whenever you're addicted to that other form of affirmation. Um, and I think that kind of like tuning into that human connection and that empathy and compassion, I think is, you know, and whatever form it is, is again, such an important thing for us to, to all find out. Compassion is incredibly important. Empathy is something I'm learning to realize I do have. And I thought for such a long time, I didn't have empathy, but I did. I blocked out my own. And because I didn't have empathy for myself, I struggled to have empathy for, empathy for others. And one saying that I've learned on my peer support course, uh, which I'm going back to, is empathy drives connection, sympathy drives disconnection. So by being empathetic, you connect better with people. It doesn't mean you have to go through exactly what someone's been through, but to hear and to understand and perhaps see how what happened to that individual can really have affected them to becoming the individual that they are today, that really can help people to understand, be like, wow, they hear me. They understand me. Whereas I think with sympathy, what you find quite often, people feel like you're, you're you're just looking down on me. You're infantilizing me. You're treating me like I'm just a victim as if I'm nothing more. And this is why there's a very fine line that people have to tread between empathy and being able to actually help people. So connection, one I've noticed, comes from empathy, but also the ability to connect with someone is also down to your capacity and your bandwidth, what you have within your remit to be able to handle. Like some people naturally are more empathetic than others. Some people have different skills than others. I do also think the word narcissism in society, we we also overplay in pop culture, but that's not anybody's fault. It's just, it's been absorbed so much into the mainstream that I often hear a lot of women go, he was a narcissist. I quite often say to people, if you dealt with someone who was a clinical narcissist, you would know. But yes. There is a really interesting point I heard somebody say recently that bad decisions are glorified on social media now in the sense of people make some really toxic decisions and they're connecting with other people who are only reaffirming their own negative behavior. And it's only as time goes on when their behaviors and their the consequences catch up with them is when they realize, hold up, that's not something I should have done. So I think with connection, you need people who hold you accountable. You need people who challenge your views on the world. But you also need people who make you a better person. And I think from the people that I've been able to connect with as a result of my OCD breakdown, I've connected with some of the most genuine, pure souls in the world who have taught me a lot about myself. And through the disconnection from my mind earlier on last year, I'm learning to reconnect with myself and the people around me. Yeah, no, again, in complete agreement. I think it's... um it's all just so crucially important and i think um i think getting the one of the one of the reasons like why i joined maximum one of the one of the most important kind of things that i, I think we're set up to accomplish is we're trying to get 
awareness of all the things that we we've been talking about even on this conversation and all the information out there i think getting that awareness into the youngest generation uh, as young as possible almost in a way so that they have like the strategies to cope with the inevitable you know life is going to throw curveballs at you you know it's life is going to be bad at some points wherever whatever background you come from whatever your story is you know it's part of the human condition to experience that tragedy that loss there's going to be something there and i think inculcating in that younger generation the correct values and giving them the space to not be ashamed about you know if they're feeling you know disconnected from say neurotypical society it's one way to frame it you know or they feel like everyone else around them is normal they feel like they're abnormal you know just to realize that that's not true to realize that you know um beneath many people's normal facade for example is they're hiding something you know like they're, they're, they're everyone is burying something in order to put on that you know that face for society and i think teaching the the young the, the generation coming through now um that you know it's important that you know if you're experiencing mental health trouble whatever form it is you, that one that it's not your fault two that it's ex- it's not unacceptable to be you know okay it's acceptable to be not okay you know it's really you know it's it's important to to realize that we have this you know massively complicated brain it's going to throw curveballs at us and we we have to accept that you know we're going to struggle from time to time and i think um having them realize that i think will kind of then the next generation will hopefully kind of take into as the years progress the decades progress then people will be more resilient they'll be more accepting you know of mental health trauma both within others and themselves and know how to deal with it better and they'll see it as part of again that adler quote you know belonging to the full spectrum of humanity i think it's a really resonant quote and it beautifully sums up everything that's you know that, that i'm really passionate about and lots of things that you're passionate about and i think um um, it's just um, a really, really important endeavor for us all to be involved in. And one of the things that I realized, you know, one of the things that kind of drove me to another thing that kind of drove me to join Maxim and to be involved in all this is in my work as a mental health support worker, I kind of like, I was treating people who had maybe been dealing with, you know, all manner of, you know, very, very serious mental health problems for, you know, one decade, two decades, three decades, you know, and what, what that made me realize is, again, the importance of, you know, providing the right space for uh, for young people to explore their mental health and be okay with being unwell, because those people that I work with were failed by the, the system. And I know they were really failed by, in my country, Northern Ireland, you know, we spent 6% of our budget, you know, on mental health, which wow. doesn't even need elaboration. It's, you know, it's really pathetic. So I think, um, and in the UK, mainland, I think it's around 13%, which isn't a lot better. You know, it's, it's not good enough. It's not where it should be. So I think those people were failed by the system. And I think um, that's one of the things that drives my passion to help the, the new generation come through, you know, realize the importance of, you know, you know, talking about your mental health and, you know, and accept being accepting of poor mental health and others and themselves and, you know, just creating a culture that's, you know, gets rid of all the shame and all of that and helps people kind of explore themselves in that way. Absolutely agree. 6% is abysmal. 13% isn't even a lot either. And that tells you that we still, to this day, don't value mental health the same way that we see physical health. You know, when you have a physical injury, you go to the hospital, you go to your GP. When people have mental health issues, sometimes they go to their GP or sometimes they keep it in-house. They keep it within who they are, not realizing that there's therapists, there's counselors, there's coaches, all in professions that are trained to help the human mind and to help gear you back towards healing. And it tells us a lot about how the world is moving. As you said, the unstable times, the instability, the failing, um, you know, there's an economic crisis really and truly going on. There's 
the house market and so much more. And this is why we're living in a time where we're not only going to need grit resilience, but we're going to need the ability to, as you said, connect to the full spectrum of humanity. And that's to connect with those around you in your circle who they perhaps may or may not be going through the same thing, but there's a people that are going to help pick you up and keep you going. And that's why I can't emphasize just how important community is. And one thing I've realized actually is dealing with um, illness community is not only so pivotal but meaningful connections are even more important so i've been in many industries such as modeling acting uh, you know public speaking and too many things are like a conveyor belt too many relationships like a conveyor belt i want to actually be able to create meaningful impactful relationships but that's also based a lot on my trauma i am someone who my attachment style is probably a bit anxious actually funnily enough someone who generally values good connection, someone who values to be able to be consistent with somebody. And technically I could probably be quite classed as a high maintenance friend. I like to keep in contact with my friends. I like to know how they're doing and so much more. So when I learned to come to the understanding of who I was deep down, it started to help me to make friends a lot easier for my own communities and to align with people who have that same value system. So it's easy for us to say, you know, speak about it and find a community but find the right kind of community and that also within itself can be a very exhausting journey mentally and emotionally because you're going to go up you're going to go down but always look within is something i'm going to say but i'm not shocked about those government numbers because when i've looked at what ocd for example cost the uk government um there's actually a recent study i need to reread again to throw the numbers at people but it tells me just how much we're failing people mentally and if we, we know already that when you take care of people better mentally, all the other outcomes improve. Yeah, completely true. I think um, basically everything you said there, and I think um, it's one of the things that kind of communities are already a big thing in this um, in this conversation that we're having. And I'm wondering about what do you think the best way is to kind of, you know, because so the new generation are kind of like the Gen Z are, are the first kind of like kind of there's a phrase uh you know not technological literates because we're technologically literate but the this, digital I natives it, digital this, natives, yeah did, yeah digital natives yeah. Yeah, yeah i remember i read that in a study yeah. yeah 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 so they're the first kind of people who have really grown up with this massive apparatus of technology all around them mm. and that could be very isolating way whether you're lost in video games although you can have a video game community as well that sort of mm. thing so I, what do you think the the best way is to to help people kind of realize you know because Whenever I was a teenager, I didn't realize any of this, you know, too busy being an idiot. So I think, um, what what do you think the best way is to, to get people to realize the importance of finding, as you said, not community, but the right community, you know, the right community for you, um, rather than being sucked in by kind of, you know, hyper-individualistic nonsense, which is really bred into the incentive structure of our, our society, you know, the very capitalistic incentive structure that we operate in, it breeds that individualism, you know, and there's a really great, I seen uh, Novara Media, there was a guy on at Mark something, I forget his second name, but he wrote a book called The Nation of Shopkeepers, The Rise of the, the Petty Bourgeois, Bourgeoisie, and I think he talked about kind of like the way that social mobility is pushed forward. It's it's almost, if it's designed to kind of break up communities and stop people coming. What's the name together. of that book? That sounds like an incredible book. Yeah, it's A Nation of Shopkeepers. Um, the a Nation of, of Shopkeepers. That yeah, sounds yeah. incredible. The guy, the author's name is Mark. I forget his second name. It's, it eludes me, but I know his first name's Mark. And it's wow. a, it's a really excellent book. Um, that I sounds think. like an incredible book. Yeah, no, it's really, really excellent. He kind of talks about 
he talks about his he did his PhD on his hometown of Porth Call in Wales mm. as an as a kind of microcosm of what's going on in the rest of the country in a way. So he talked about kind of like the way that social media is, or not social media, social mobility is kind of pushed forward. It's almost as if like the education system is set up, you know, so that people have like, once you move up a little bit around the, the education system, you're you're less likely to want to change the society in a way because you, you know you can maybe benefit from it or maybe get to the top of it, top of your profession and all of that. So it fragments communities in that way. So you then become disconnected from where you've came from. And I think that's true of a lot of people around the world because obviously they move to the city once they leave their hometown and then they're connected, disconnected from all that's going on in their community and all the rest. It's a really, really good book. And I think it made me rethink social mobility in a lot of ways because you're taught implicitly to think that social mobility is a very good thing, I think, immediately, almost uncritically. I think you're kind of like, right, social mobility is great. Of course, you want to make more money. You know, It's very, again, that hyper-individualism which permeates pretty much everything in our incentive structures and the education system is no different. And I think that's one reason why it's failing a lot of people but helping up a lot of other people as well. So I think it's a really, really, really excellent book. And I think... um it ties directly into all that we've talked about so far um, with regards to community and finding the right community. I think um, caring about people around you, not looking to out-compete the people around you, you know, and do better than them by what that very capitalistic definition. But I think, um, you know, caring for other people, looking to start initiatives in your own community, you know, putting forward mm. your story, um, empathy, compassion, you know, courage, all those things are, are much more important than trying to out-compete your, your neighbor or, you know, having getting to a place where you feel like you can look down on people i think i think we're distracted by a lot of those values and it's uh, it's, it's a lot of work to kind of break through them and you know find your true self find your community and yeah i mean um what do you think what advice would you give to to, to to you know someone in gen z right now who maybe has a similar story to yourself right and they're you know they're still very young still processing it what's the advice you would give to to to, to that person so very interesting you asked that question because i'm going to a school tomorrow to talk about these kind of damn topics and speaking about social mobility social mobility is a, it's a new phenomenon really and truly people don't realize that social mobility is built upon the idea of a meritocracy the idea that if you work as hard as you work you're going to get everywhere you're going to get to and that's not necessarily true it really is not true uh, it's probably one of the biggest lies we've ever been told because if hard work got you everywhere you wanted to be that would mean the people who were born into money i'm not saying people born into money don't work hard but they would have the same amount of equal opportunity and footing to fail just as much as you do however when we fail we don't have a safety net other people have safety nets meritocracy social mobility it's been debunked on several occasions and one of my friends he went to a boarding school. He had the fantastic opportunity to get a scholarship, which drastically has changed his life forever. And he talks about social mobility all the time. He explained to me about social mobility. He's looked into the numbers. He's crunched them over and over again. And he came to realize that, wow, this idea is not, it's a redundant idea. It's a very false notion. And when, as you said, this hyper-individualistic capitalist society where we go to work to work for a nine to five, communities are disintegrated. Once upon a time ago, you could go to your neighbors and ask for sugar and salt. You can't do that now. You, there's unwritten rules on, um, you know, on, for example, on London public transport. You don't talk to people you don't know. You don't look at people in the eye that you don't know. All of these unwritten rules, whereas once upon a time ago, it was very different. We've become so absorbed in our technology that we've forgotten on the other end are human beings that we could really live with. And this is something else I've realized. 
that I've also struggled with. So a lot of the people that have reached out to me on social media, I always make time for the people that are suffering. That's something really important to me and really close to my cause, right? So a lot of people will check, check in with me when they're not doing so great. And then when they're okay, or it, it depends, maybe they don't really keep in contact with me anymore. And it actually hurt me because I realized I make time for people. Why don't people make time for me? And one of my friends was saying to me that people don't feel the need to uphold parasocial relationships anymore. In the generation that me and you grew up in, we grew up with the ascent of social media. We grew up in a time where we still were able to go outside and create those connections beyond the limits of in digital interference. Whereas now, as you said, kids are growing up with social media. They're growing up addicted to social media. And I think in the future, they're going to ban social media the same way they've banned smoking from certain places. So as much as people laugh at the petty bourgeoisie, you know, when they go tech-free Tuesdays, there's some actual good benefits to these kind of ideas. There's actually really good psychological evidence that shows the more time you spend away from your phone, the happier you are. The less time you spend on social media, the happier you are. The less you are addicted to substances and external validation, you really do truly start to sit with more of yourself as an individual. So the fact you've touched on these things is really interesting me, and I'm going to download that book as well. Yeah, no, it's a it's a really really fantastic book, and I think um, it should be almost. I it's almost it sounds very dramatic, um, but I think it should almost be made a mandatory reading. I feel almost for everyone coming through now who's you know who wants to read it and is capable of reading it and all that. I think like it's really it's it's really imp important book, like because it talks about a lot of the things that we just accept uncritically, and this sort of. Uh, really really hyper capitalist society and and i think um all of those things you know like social media you know better yourself you know there's a lot of not that self-talk is unimportant but there's there there is a lot of self-talk i feel emphasized you know at almost at the expense of community and a lot of you know mental health professional i feel like that that kind of like almost a titanic ego of self is kind of pushed forth and a lot of you know therapeutic schools and all the rest of it and i think not that it's unimportant because sometimes you do have to focus on who you are and you are i'm not discounting any of that but i think um i've been there myself i've done it but i think it's uh, i think emphasizing that communal aspect of you know uh, of self not just focusing on you know you as this atomized individual who needs to improve you know his or herself you know and then go back into working the nine to five under the two you know the the tubescent lighting that's just you know i mean like it's just it's it's almost like i think it's that the communal aspect of you know improving mental health needs to be emphasized a, a lot more in my opinion because um it's just as important if not more so absolutely you that communal i i can't I can't put it into terms enough for people to get people to really understand just how important it is for community. Because when you're alone, who do you rely on? You rely on your family. Your family is your community. But sometimes you learn more from other people you're exposed to. You learn more from other people you've never had an opportunity to really experience. So you know, one thing I've learned to realize again is the glitz, not everything that I'm glitter glitters is gold, but also the grass is only greener where you water it. And by having nurturing relationships where even if a lot of my friends, and um, one thing I've learned to realize as I've gotten older is the importance of feminine counsel. And what I mean by that was when my dad died, I was raised by an army of very important women. Um, all my aunties and so my mom's friends all came together to help to raise me. And if it wasn't for that community, I wouldn't be the young man that I am today. I think I would have been a very 
very different young man. I would have been the young man who perhaps maybe made very different choices in the world. So I recognize the importance and really and truly the essential nature of it, the backbone, the scaffolding to my existence and how I am able to see the world for what it is today. And it saddens me because I look at a lot of these children and the more and more they're getting absorbed into their phones, it's the less and less time they're spending in the real world. And that's why addictions on the rise, anxiety and depression are on the rise, you know, antidepressants are on the rise. There's so many things that are on the rise. And a lot of it has to do with the way we're now living our lives. It's not sustainable and it's not fulfilling to the human soul. There's a saying, there's an African proverb that a child um, not raised if a child is not embraced by its village, it will burn it down to feel its warmth. So it's the idea if a child's not raised by a community, it will do everything destructive in its power to really and truly feel that same warmth that they should have got when they were younger. So I don't disagree with anything that you're saying. I've downloaded that book already and I'm going to start getting to reading. Well, that's a really, that African proverb you put forward, it's a really, really profound one. Um, I think that uh, perfectly articulates um, a lot of the, you know, um, I think that a lot of the things that the communities go through and people who maybe have struggled, you know, haven't received a lot of love and warmth in their community, they they will, they do tend to be quite uh, like hostile and aggressive, you know, they can do yeah. because it's, it's all defense mechanisms and all, it's, they've just been dragged through, you know. And mm. I think like you can never blame them for being that way. And I think um we all need love and support and they they need it as much as anyone else, if not more so. So I think that's a crucially important point. I think I want to touch on one of your 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 TED talks, um, which really interests me. It was about, you know, masculinity and the straight jacket of masculinity and that its relationship with mental health and and trying to get men to talk about their mental health more. I think um I think that is one of the uh, again, a really, really important endeavor that we we all need to partake in. I think. What What would your advice be to say a young man who you know he's again had a he's had a really a lot of struggle in his life and he's you know he's been you know he's been dragged up. There's been tragedy after tragedy. He's nowhere to go. He doesn't feel love. He doesn't know what to go, and he adopts that you know that's kind of like that really really hyper masculine persona and not talk about the feelings, and all the rest of it, all that it involves. What do you think is the the best advice you could give to him that could kind of put him on a path of look this is not going to bring me any good it's better to open up what i'm going through i've got a brilliant sh story to share i've got something to offer this world how do you, what do you think is the best way to pivot him towards that path and not kind of fall into that you know that usual traps that come with you know kind of conventional masculinity i think for me the first thing i'd want to say to him is i understand and i hear why you've had to become hyper masculine to survive the hardship and the toils of the world and survival quite often makes a man more masculine but also traumatizes him but that trauma quite often can benefit some men in the long run but in the sh in the in the short term but in the long run it can have incredibly detrimental effects if they don't start to deal with the issues that have come out as a result of that the second thing i'd want to understand is his reference point when did things change when was that moment when he was like i can't do this anymore the way that i'm going on i need to change something has to give and that's something i'd really want to understand because i think from that you can kind of understand somebody's transition into the space of where they're in now and what would it look like for him to relinquish and let go of this hyper masculinity that he's holding on to because people forget masculinity inherently is not bad masculinity has built the world around us and for a lot of people that's a controversial talking point because you sound like you're from the red pill community but no 
femininity was very important to raising the children from the uh you know in the tribes and so much more but there was very important roles that men played and that allowed us to really understand the world as we know it today and those things work in beautiful cohesion so i have to understand more about him then what i want to go on to do after that is to see how we could get that young man to envision a world where he could still be masculine and he's not any more masculine because he's in touch with his emotions and how could we learn to relinquish the things that he once did that served him but perhaps may no longer be serving him now but that's a careful extraction process that's a careful interviewing process it's a careful breaking it down step by step taking time getting to understand him and really and truly just envision him outside of his current reality and what i mean by that again is with my mentors they help me to really see the world outside of my current reality because for someone listening to this now they probably think oh sean you're in a far better place i'm like no i'm still got my debt i still need to pay off my therapist i'm still rebuilding my life i've still got so much going on and i'm not any less of a man i'm still very emotional i cry quite often i've learned to start letting go of this bravado and this masks that i put up for a very long time and it just hasn't served me it didn't serve me i hurt people i hurt myself i destroyed really good relationships because i wanted to constantly test people i wanted to make sure people that were going to be in my life were going to love me for a very long time and weren't going to give up on me and sometimes as a result of that you push really good people away so these are the sort of, a lot of the things that i've learned on my own journey so i'd want to share that with that young man and I'm not going to force him to change. That's not what I'm here to do. I'm here. I'm here to just offer my experiences, and perhaps my experiences can offer him a mirror at which he can look at himself and realize. In time, due time, you know, it takes it takes certain it takes certain catatonic moments sometimes for people to get to that space. But it's a careful process. I completely agree. You know, it's kind of like um, it's almost a. It's, again, it's a massive, a massive defense mechanism in a lot of ways. It's the the patterns that he's learned. You know, if you grew up, if you grew up in that environment, you know, and you learned that pattern, you know, that's that's your experience, that's your lived experience of life. You know, you you can't expect him to kind of you know go into all of the other the knowledge that we have now. If that if that's his lived experience, it's going to take it's going to be really difficult to kind of you know replace that software with something else you know it's uh, you know it can be re really impossible at a certain stage and like you said it maybe requires some catatonic moments you know moments where you feel like something's really breaking down so that another part of yourself you know can can come forth i think um so i think that's a really a really really interesting and important point and topic of conversation i think what do you think is is kind of the best way you said a really interesting point, I think, earlier on in the conversation about you think that social media is going to be treated the same way as smoking in some ways. You think you're going to ban it in certain places, I think. And I actually agree with that. I actually, I never really thought about that before, but now that you mentioned it, I think I actually can see that coming for a lot of the yeah. same logical reasons that smoking was banned, you know, if a little bit differently. But I think, um, what do you think? But before that happens, assuming, assuming that doesn't happen, maybe it doesn't happen, but what do you think is the best way for you know, the upcoming generation um, to relate to social media because it feels unavoidable a lot of time because sometimes if you're like, like I, I don't have a Facebook, I deleted it a while ago and I don't have Instagram either, but I'm on LinkedIn, obviously. So I think it's almost impossible to avoid social media in one form or another. I find, you know, whether it's for the, you know, the you know, leisure and pleasure reasons, like, you know, kind of Instagram or Facebook or career reasons like LinkedIn, it seems it's it's all around us and you can't avoid it in many ways, especially if you have a smartphone, you're always incentivized to get involved with social media in one form or another. So what do you think is the best way for 
for the upcoming generation to 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 engage with social media and but engage with it in a, in a really careful way when it comes to their mental health what do you think is the the best way that everyone could do that in the upcoming generation i think parents shouldn't be allowing children to have smartphones before the age of potentially even 11 12 kids cannot comprehend what's on a phone they can find anything the world is quite literally their oyster. And one thing I'd want people to really realize is to go through maybe a social media literacy slash safety course, but that can be seen as quite bureaucratic or dogmatic, especially if the big um, the government tells you to do that. But I wouldn't give kids phones up until, as I said, 11, 12, I wouldn't do it. And social media is and has been very carefully engineered and it's become part of the, part of the immersive experience essentially of being human and what i mean by that is there's one drug in the world where if people don't take it people ask them and that's alcohol but i think there's also another type of drug that if you don't have it people ask you why don't you have it and that's quite often social media right we see the visible effects of alcohol we drink driving and so much more we see the visible effects of smoking such as lung cancer throat cancer and so much more but because social media's effects are a little bit more insidious and they take a longer time to really notice and it's not really as apparent as, you know, perhaps phys something physical, people don't understand its impact. And I quite often say to people the same way with coffee, withdraw yourself from coffee and to see, to see your relationship with coffee, withdraw yourself from porn to see your relationship with porn, withdraw yourself from the relationship with social media to see your relationship with social media. And quite often it will challenge you massively. And when I deleted social media apps off my phone, you know, I started going on my phone just to, to be like, wait, hold up. This has become so deeply ingrained in my behavior to go and check my phone for no reason. And even when I'm not on my phone, it's one of the most relieving things I've ever done, really and truly. But again, I'm not perfect. I'm not trying to preach to anybody. But I often say to people, there's a great book I read called Offline, which talks about social media addiction. And it was talking about how sometimes on average on a day, we can check our phones more than 200 times or the, the the dangers of social media are they far outweigh the positives and social media in itself can be a vehicle for good it's made the, the world sm um, smaller which allows us to keep in contact with people we wouldn't ordinarily be able to keep in contact with but also in that very very same breath with social media what we have seen is it's incentivize toxic behaviors we're stuck down echo chambers more than we ever have been we keep ourselves locked into the same old political social narratives we don't have the ability to go out into the real world and have somebody to disagree with us and social media's advanced culture wars really and truly so people say cancel culture and culture wars don't exist but it does we've never been more divided than we ever have been in the world yet we are more conjoined in the world than we ever have been through social media and that's one of the biggest oxymorons i've found completely agree it is it is a, a complete paradox and a complete oxymoron it's kind of like it is this double-edged sword whereas i completely agree it has made the world smaller so you can see what's happening in china now and there you can see chat to someone who's living in south america japan you know wherever you want to talk to there's communities everywhere i completely agree with that that is one you know positive edge of the sword uh, quite frankly and it's also exposed a lot of things as well like that maybe wouldn't have been exposed before social media was um um you know started to proliferate in the way that it has so i completely agree i think one of the things that you, you touched upon there you know uh, about the pearls kind of really outweighing the benefits and i would have to agree with that i think there's a group there's a, a book a really 
terrifying book, to be quite frank. Um, it's by uh, written by Shoshana Zuboff. It's called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, and it's a yes, so much really, really big. I was actually just yeah. reading into Project Pegasus. I'm not sure if you heard of Project Pegasus, where they're trying to stop shoplifters now. So ten of the major retailers they're putting in 600k for Project Pegasus to stop shoplifters, right? And to some people, they're going to be like, "Oh, that's good. I don't shoplift. That doesn't matter." But the the minute you step into a store, you give away your personal data. There's something about big surveillance that is terrifying because in Hong Kong, for example, you know, if you shoplift, I believe you get caught in 15 minutes. The average to get caught in Hong Kong is 15 minutes. That's how highly surveyed um, China is as a, as a society. And to some people, that's good. But these are the ways slowly Big Brother starts to really creep in. To some people, that's a conspiracy theory. But let me give people another example to really ground them. Once upon a time ago, when you went to a supermarket, there was enough staff, right? But what people started to do is they brought in automated technology, which is you pay one bigger lump sum, but you don't have to pay a pension. You don't have to pay life insurance. You don't have to pay for lunch. You just you know, put your money into this machine and it takes your money and you can get on about with your day. To some people in the convenience world, that's great. but it's not great in the long run because I think it's going to become a niche and it's going to become something sorely missed when we no longer start to see human beings in shops or, you know, in just in supermarkets in general, because people just want to get in and get out. It's not good for society the way that we're moving. Yeah, no, couldn't agree more. It is, it all, it is all very perilous and all very jarring and very worrying, quite frankly. And yeah, that book is, is, is a really terrifying book, to be quite frank. Um, it's a yeah. big tome, like it's really loads of pages in it and it's really well written, but it's it's so terrifying. And I think it just lays out the reality that the reality is the big corporations, you know, um they're mining mining are like you know what one, one thing that really creeps me out is whenever you're you're talking to someone, your phone picks it up and all of a sudden you start getting items sent to you you know whether it's amazon or you know it kind of comes up oh you should buy this it comes up in your facebook probably one of the reasons why i deleted facebook because when i was talking about holiday with my partner for example all of a sudden holidays would would, would come up on my facebook i, I just find that totally uh, beyond creepy so i think like that book kind of lays out that reality the reality is these corporations hire you know very yes. smart people behavioral scientists who specifically yep. look and research they do their phds in it they research the a lot of their phds are funded by these corporations mm -hmm. they, they research what is the best way essentially to mine the human population for profit maximization yes. so what's the best way we can get more people to buy our stuff who cares what they're going through it'll care about them Let's get them in, mine them to the last sinew of their being for profit maximization. And they hire these, these behavioral scientists and all the rest of it to, to do it. And I think that's a really terrifying thing. And it's contributed absolutely. And that's one thing that the social dilemma explored. You know, it's kind of like it really explores how the algorithms are set up purposely yes. to, to facilitate that division because it is beneficial, you know, for revenue of certain corporations, for business on Facebook, you know. You know, really controversial content gets more views and the mainstream media is set up the exact same way. So, you know, Piers Morgan, for example, like, you know, nuance goes to die on Piers Morgan's show, you know, so people just go on it. It's it's just, it's a, it's a, it's a place where <laughs> nuance goes. It's like, you know, what? I'm not going to go here. I'm going to go back outside the studio because it's just, it's just, it just devolves into shouting, you know, discussion of complex issues is lost. And it's not just his show, but all the whole mainstream media is set up that way. And I think um, it's set up, you know, just to push forward sensationalist kind of nonsense so that people don't think critically, you know, they don't have the confidence to think critically because they're like, oh, well, this is the mainstream media. You know, these people are important news. I can't criticize them. You can't, you know, they're all 
there, there are people who are there to be criticized like everyone is. You know, they're not perfect. And I think that book kind of laid out the reality that was put forward in the social dilemma. You know, it's it's a terrifying reality. And it's kind of like it's because it's 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 everywhere now. You know, these corporations are massive. You know, there's like and it goes across the political divide as well. You know, so for example, the there's a woman who works for Facebook. I don't know if she still works there or not. She was like the massive CEO, another billionaire, um, alongside Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, Cheryl Sandberg, I think was her name. And she wrote this book about how, you know, say women can have it all and all the rest of it. I'm not saying there wasn't some fantastic points in that book, but on the side of things, she was kind of like actively involved, you know, with all the things that Mark Zuckerberg was involved in, you know, hiding certain things that certain employees did. So she was still, even though she's probably a really good person in some other ways, she was still bound by capitalism and to the same extent that Mark Zuckerberg was, to the same extent that everyone else was. And I think that's a really, really important point. And I think it goes across the political divide. It's, you know, um, you know, all those important things like compassion, equal rights, and all the rest of it, you know, like this phenomenon goes across the political divide, divides us even further and facilitates, like you says, you know, it's it's splitting society and you know, to the benefit of very, very, very few people, you know, I'm afraid. It's to the benefits of the upper echelons in society who stand to benefit in a way that most people can't comprehend. And you're right that the algorithms really and truly study human behavior. And I do think a lot of these psychologists and and more uh, probably are quite immoral, but this is the issue when money really and truly is the only object that moves the human frontier for advancement. You really have to question a lot of people's behaviors and morals. Completely agree. You know, people can only operate within the incentive structures that they, because the incentive structures are really, um, are really what what needs to change. Because you know, if you get someone who's hard right, for example, and someone who's hard left, they're never going to agree in anything. But you know, like the incentive structure around them affects both their lives. You know, in a way, and the incentive structure around them is created both of them in some ways you know in many ways as well so it's that capitalistic incentive structures that drives a lot of our behaviors and i think you know once we get rid of that hardware i think we can all you know it'll be much easier for us all to work on our software and realize that justice equality empathy compassion are will create a better world for us all absolutely thank you so much Listen, Sean, this has been an absolutely fantastic conversation. I've really, really, really enjoyed this. I knew it was going to be this fantastic, to be honest, like when I read more about you and watched a few more TED Talks. And I think I've really enjoyed everything we've talked about here today. It's one of the best conversations I've had for sure. Um, And thank you very much for giving us some of your time today. No, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to speak on your podcast. And it's been a very different conversation to the ones I'm usually having. It's been nice to explore the different realities of what community is what illness is and how we can really and truly move forward as a better society so again thank you for giving me the opportunity and to anyone who's listening please feel free to reach out i'm always happy to chat with people i'm always happy to make time i'm always trying to going to try and be there for people as much as i can to build my community beautiful john flores thank you so much Thank you so much for this great conversation, Barbara and Ryan. If you would like to join and share your story, please email us or reach out on our social media channels. You will find all the info in the podcast description. See you next time.